Chapter Fifteen of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen: An Extraordinary Interview. But he could not sleep. His brain was too busy. He wondered in what part of the house Gigi and Gitup were domiciled. He wondered if Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence were drawing up affidavits. He wondered if that taxicab man had yet come to town, and if he would get out a warrant, charging him, Bob, with assault. He wondered if Dan and Clarence knew Gigi and Gitup were here, and if so, what would they do about it? Would they, too, come prancing on the scene? He wondered if Miss Gerald were engaged to the hammer-man. He wondered if the maniac medico would think of looking for him here. He wondered where the police were looking for him, and who was the thief anyway. This last mental query led him to consider the guests one by one. He began with the bishop. Suspicion, of course, could not point in that direction. But still there was that play, Deacon Brody. A very good man was a thief in it. But a deacon wasn't a bishop. Besides, Bob had great respect for the cloth. He dismissed the bishop with an inward apology. He next considered the judge, but the judge was too portly for those agile sleight-of-hand feats and the deft footwork required. He passed on to the doctor. The doctor had delicate little hands, adapted for filching work, but he was too much absorbed in cutting up little dogs and cats to care for such insensible trifles as glittering gewgaws. The doctor might be capable of absconding with a Fido or somebody's pet meow, but an inanimate cooey nor would hold for him no temptations. So, from Doc, Bob passed on to Mrs. Van. But she wouldn't surreptitiously appropriate her own brooch. He even considered the temperamental young thing, whose interest in crime and criminals was really shocking. He had got about this far in thrashing things over in his mind, when a rather startling realization that he wasn't alone in the room smote him. Someone was over there at the window, and that someone had softly crossed the room. Bob made an involuntary movement, turning in bed to see plainer, when, with a slight sound of suppressed surprise, the someone almost magically disappeared. Bob couldn't tell whether he had gone out of the window or had sprung back into the room, and was now concealing himself behind the heavy curtains. The young man made a sudden rush for the window and grabbed for the curtain, only to discover there was no one there. Nor could he see anyone on the balcony or climbing down. He did see below, however, a skulking figure fast vanishing among the shrubbery. A moment the thought of the Commodore insinuated itself in the young man's bewildered brain, but the Commodore would not again be trying to see him here, for the very good reason that Dan could not know Bob was here. No one yet knew Bob had returned to Mrs. Ralston's house. The Commodore and Clarence no doubt still believed Bob to be shut up in a cute little cubbyhole with bars. The skulking figure below, then, could be dissociated from the complicated domestic tangle. His proper place was in that other silent drama, dealing with mysterious peculations. Should Bob come down, follow and attempt to capture him? Bob had on only his pyjamas, and already the fellow was far away. He would lead anyone a fine chase, and Bob hadn't any special desire to go romping over hills in his present attire, or want of attire. If anyone caught him doing it, what excuse could he make? That he was chasing an accomplice of a thief inside the house, who had probably dropped his glittering booty for his pal to take away? 
but he was supposed to be that inside operator himself and he wouldn't be chasing his own pal or again if he were detected in that sprinting performance by those who didn't know he was supposed to be an inside operator but who thought him only a plain crazy man wouldn't the necessity of his reincarceration be but emphasized maybe this latter contingent of his enemies would consider a plain public insane asylum without flowers in the window good enough for him they undoubtedly would so conclude if they knew the state of bob's private fortune which certainly did not justify private institutions a slight noise behind him drove all these considerations from bob's mind he dove at once in the direction of the sound only to fall over his grip and as he sprawled not heroically in the dark his door was opened and closed almost noiselessly exasperated he gathered himself together and made for the door throwing it back he gazed down the hall only to see a figure swiftly vanishing around a dimly lighted corner bob couldn't make out whether it was a man or a woman but seeing no one else in the hall he impetuously and recklessly darted after it when he reached the corner however the figure was gone bob stood in a quandary there were a good many different doors around that corner through which one had his mysterious visitor vanished if he but knew he felt certain he could place his hand on the much-wanted individual who was making such a nuisance of himself in social circles he might be able to rid society of one of those essentially modern pests and at the same time lift the mantle of suspicion from himself at least he would be partly rehabilitated later he might complete the process and oh to have her once more see him as he was he was sorely tempted to try a door he even put his hand on the knob of the door nearest the corner the figure must have turned in here he couldn't have gone farther without bob's having caught sight of him at least bob felt almost sure of this conclusion having attained that corner with considerable celerity himself almost on the point of turning the knob prudence bade bob to pause suppose he made a mistake suppose for example he stumbled upon gee gee's room or Gidup's. the perspiration started on bob's brow gee gee would be quite capable of hanging on to him and then raising a row just for publicity purposes she would make a copy out of anything that girl would then if it wasn't gee gee's room it might be mrs van's fancy his invading the privacy of that austere lady's boudoir bob's hand shook slightly and the knob rattled a trifle he hastily released it to his horror a voice called out anyone there it was gee gee bob stood still not daring to stir lest gee gee with senses alert should hear him and come out and find him he prayed devoutly not to be found it was bad enough to be crazy and to be a social buccaneer without having miss gerald look upon him as an intrigant a don juan and a jonathan wilde all rolled into one bob wanted to flee the worst way but still he thought it better to contain himself and stand there like a wooden man a few moments longer anyone there repeated gee gee a neighbouring door opened and one of the last men bob wanted to see under the circumstances looked out it was the hammer-thrower and his honest face expressed a world of wonder incredulity and reproach as he beheld and recognized bob who didn't know what to do or to say he certainly didn't want to say anything though having no desire to agitate miss gee gee any further 
Fortunately, the hammer-thrower seemed too amazed for words. He just kept looking and looking. "'Where on earth did you come from?' his glance seemed to say. "'Are you the ghost of Bob Bennett? And if you aren't, what are you doing here before a lady's door at this time of night?' Disapproval now became mixed with indecision in the hammer-thrower's glance. He seemed trying to make up his mind whether or not it was a case demanding forcible measures on his part. Was it his duty to spring upon Bob, then and there, and show him up before the world? Bob read the thought. In another moment Gigi might come to the door, and then? Bob suddenly and desperately determined to throw himself upon the mercy of the hammer-thrower. Indeed, he had no choice. Quickly he moved to the door where his hated rival stood, and as quickly pushed by him and entered that person's room. At the same moment Gigi unlocked her door. Bob couldn't see her, though, as he was now thankfully swallowed up in the depths of a recess in the hammer-thrower's room. Gigi peeked out. She met the eye of the hammer-thrower, who had modestly withdrawn most of his person back into his apartment, and who now suffered only a fraction of his face to be revealed to Gigi at that unseemly hour and place, and under such unseemly circumstances. "'I beg your pardon,' said the hammer-thrower, deferentially, and in a very low tone. "'But did you call out?' "'Yes, I thought I heard someone at my door.' Bob hardly breathed. Would the hammer-thrower hail him forth? Would he toss him, or try to, right out into the hall at Gigi's feet? "'I—I I don't see anyone,' said the hammer-thrower, hesitatingly, and still in a very low voice. His hesitation, however, told Bob he had considered, or was still considering, that forceful policy. "'I certainly thought I did hear someone,' observed Gigi, matching the other's tones. His voice seemed to imply that it might be as well not to arouse any others of the household, and Gigi involuntarily fell in with the suggestion. "'You!' again, however, that awful hesitation. The hammer-thrower had no reason to like Bob, for he did not know that young gentleman had the presumption to adore Miss Gerald. Still, the apparently more successful suitor for Gwendolen's hand had a sportsmanlike instinct. He had been brought up to be conscientious. He had been educated to be gentlemanly and considerate. Perhaps he was asking himself now if it might not be more sportsmanlike not to denounce Bob, then and there, but to give him at least a chance to explain? "'You—you you must be mistaken,' said the hammer-thrower, after a pause, in a low, tense whisper. "'Sure it wasn't you?' murmured Gigi softly, but suspiciously, and eyeing the other's open and trustworthy countenance. "'I—' for a moment Bob thought now, indeed, had come the time to eject him, but— "'Is that a reasonable conjecture?' the other murmured back. Gigi pondered. "'No, it ain't,' she confessed at length. Locked double doors separated her room and the hammer-throwers. He would surely have used a skeleton key on those doors, were he the guilty party, instead of going out into the hall to try to get in that way. "'I got to thinking of that swell burglar who is going the rounds before I went to sleep,' murmured Gigi, "'and I may have been dreaming of him. Sorry to have disturbed you.' And Gigi closed her door very quietly. She thought she must have been mistaken about the intruder. Anyhow, 
There wasn't much excitement for an actress any more in being robbed. That advertising stunt had been so overworked that even the provincial dramatic critics yawned and tossed the advance man's little yarn of jewels lost right into an unsympathetic wastebasket. A scandal in high life was always more efficacious. No one ever got tired of scandals, and city editors simply clamoured for more. So Gee Gee composed herself for sleep again. She had reason to be satisfied, for had not she and Gidup, who roomed with her, sat up late and arranged final details before retiring? Gidup would say, We'll make it like this, and Gee Gee would answer, No, like this. Of course, Gee Gee's way was better. Upon a slender thread of fact, she fashioned, as Dicky had feared, a most wonderful edifice of fancy. She had mapped out a case that would startle even dear old New York. Better do it good, if we're going to do it at all, she had said. Gidup had been a little doubtful at first, but she always did what Gigi told her in the end. And Gigi knew she could depend upon Gidup's memory, for once the latter had had a small part. She had to say, Send for the doctor. And she had never been known to get mixed up and say, Send for the police, or for the undertaker, or anything equally ridiculous. Having thoroughly rehearsed her lines, she would stick to them like a major. When Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence and the two G's should get together on the morrow, the largest anticipations of the two former ladies would be realized. Gee Gee wouldn't have Mrs. Dan disappointed for the world. Gidup was rather afraid of Mrs. Clarence. However, she had been batted about by so many rough stage managers and cranky musical directors, she could stand almost anything. But what about Bob? That young gentleman, now seated in the hammer-thrower's room, had frankly revealed what had happened to bring him out in the hall. In a low tone, he told why he had approached Gigi's door, and what had been in his mind when he had placed his hand on the knob. The hammer-thrower, if not appearing particularly impressed by Bob's story, listened gravely. Occasionally he shook his head. It wasn't, on the whole, a very reasonable-sounding yarn. Truth certainly sounded stranger than fiction in this instance. Bob couldn't very well blame the other for not believing. Still, he owed him that explanation. Though he might detest him as the man who would probably rob him of Miss Gerald's hand, still the fact remained that the hammer-thrower appeared at present in the guise of his saviour. Bob couldn't get away from this unpleasant conclusion. He didn't want to have anything to do with the other, and yet here he was in his room actually being shielded by him. The situation was, indeed, well-nigh intolerable. The hammer-thrower studied Bob with quiet, earnest eyes, and the latter had to acknowledge to himself that the man's face was strong and capable. If Miss Gerald married him, as seemed not unlikely, she would, at any rate, not get a weak man. He was about as big as Bob, though not so reckless-looking. Bob was handsomer, in his dashing way, but some girls, sensibly inclined, would prefer what might appear a more reliable type. The hammer-thrower looked so sure of himself and his ground, he inspired confidence. He looked too sure of his ground now, as regards Bob. "'It won't do,' he said, with his usual directness to Bob, when the latter had finished explaining. "'Sounds a little fishy. I'm sorry, old chap, but I shall have to have time to think it all over, and then I'll try to decide what is best to be done.' You say you were unjustly incarcerated in a private sanitarium. 
Bob hadn't explained the circumstances, who had incarcerated him and why. That you were incarcerated at all is a matter of regret. To you? said Bob cynically. Of course, firm, but with faint surprise. You didn't think I rejoiced at your misfortune, did you? I didn't know. I thought it possible. The hammer-thrower's heavy brows drew together. "'You seem to have a little misconception of my character,' he observed, with a trace of formality. "'You were incarcerated, apparently pro bono publico. I had no hand in it. If I had been consulted, I should have hesitated some time before expressing an opinion.' "'Thanks,' said Bob curtly. Such generous reserve was rather galling, coming from this quarter. "'I'm afraid you don't mean that,' replied the other, "'and it's a bad habit to say what you don't mean.' However, we are drifting from the subject. You will pardon me for not swallowing a capite al calcum, that little Munchausen explanation of yours. I don't care whether you swallow it head, neck, and breeches, or not, returned Bob. The other had taken a classical course at college, and Bob conceived he was ponderously trying to show off, just to be annoying. He was adopting a doubly irritating and classical manner of calling Bob a liar and that young man was not accustomed to being called that, at least of yore. Maybe he would have to stand it now. It seemed so. "'You're like a good many other people I've met lately,' said Bob, not without a touch of weariness, as well as bitterness. "'You don't know the truth when you hear it.' The hammer-thrower drew up his heavy shoulders. "'No use abusing me, old chap,' he said, in even, well-poised tones. "'Am I at fault for your unpopularity?' indeed as if arguing with himself in his slow heavy fashion i fail to understand why you have made yourself unpopular you seem to have proceeded with deliberate intention however that is irrelevant you say there was someone in your room or rather the room you were supposed to have vacated but to which you have unaccountably returned not i imagine by way of the front door severely and after entering in burglarious fashion you pursued a phantom the phantom vanished, leaving you in a compromising position. You expect people to believe that? Shaking his head. I should be surprised if they did, answered Bob gloomily. I suppose you'll tell everybody tomorrow. That's the question, said the other seriously. What is my duty in the matter? I don't want to do you an irreparable injury. Yet appearances certainly seem to indicate that you... He hesitated. Never mind the Latin for it, said Bob. Plain Anglo-Saxon will do. Call me a thief. It's an ugly word, said the other reluctantly. And, well, I don't wish to be hasty. My father always told me to help a man whenever I could, not to shove him down. And maybe... He paused. There was really a nice expression on his strong face. Oh, you think I may be only a young offender? A juvenile in crime? exclaimed Bob bitterly. The words are your own, observed the other, to tell you the truth, seriously. I hardly know what to think. It is all too extraordinary, too unexpected. I'll have to ponder on it. The profs at college always said I had the champion's slow brain. The peculiar part to me is, that puzzled look returning to his heavy features, I can't understand why you're making people think what they do of you. Frankly, I don't believe you're dippy. You were always rather just what is the word mercurial yes that will do but your head looks right enough to me what's the latin for thank you said bob 
"'Do you really think this is a trivial matter?' asked the other, bending a stronger glance upon his visitor. "'I believe you are somewhat obligated to me. Please bear that in mind,' with quiet dignity. "'As I was saying, your conduct since coming here seems to baffle explanation, that is, the right one. I wonder what is your lay, anyhow. What's the idea? I like to be able to grasp people,' forcefully. "'And you escape me. I can't get at the tangible in you. Nor,' with a sudden quick glance, "'can Miss Gerald.' "'Suppose we leave her name out,' said Bob sharply. "'You've done me a favour which I ought not to have accepted, and I tell you frankly, I'd rather have accepted it from anyone else in the world.' "'I think I understand,' replied the other quietly, with no show of resentment on his heavy features. "'Have a cigar?' indicating a box on the table. "'I'd rather not.' "'Very well.' For some moments Bob sat in moody silence. Then suddenly he got up. "'Am I to be permitted to return to my room?' he asked. "'I believe I told you I would consider your case,' said the hammer-thrower. And Bob passed out. He regained his room without mishap, which rather surprised him. He almost expected to be intercepted by the monocle-man, but nothing of the kind happened. End of chapter 15